Have you ever been there? You ever just really just wanted to impress somebody? I was 13 years old, if I remember, between 13 and 14 years old. And I was really, really trying hard to impress someone. You see, something had happened to me. I, um, for the longest time, up until that point in my life at least, um, for all of those 12 and a half to 13 years or so, I had viewed the opposite sex one way, and now suddenly I was looking at them and in a whole different light. I always saw girls as someone fun to irritate, someone to, to uh, tease and to pick on and to get them to say my name with through their teeth. Ken! That was the way I saw females in my life. My sisters received all of the teasing that I was capable of dishing out. But now, and then my schoolmates, the, the girls in my grade, I would tease. But now something had transpired in me. And I grew up in a culture, right or wrong, I don't know why it was, but in my school, I clearly remember back in the dark ages when dirt was being formed and I was going to school, I clearly remember that in that culture, as a young man, at some point in that age group, something was wrong with you in junior high if you didn't have a girlfriend. And I had noticed girls in a whole different light, as I said, and... I was, at this point, really trying to impress a young lady. You see, it had happened to me that um, we had just reached the point in our maturity level. And you'll remember these stages. It, before this, I would get a note from somebody and it would say, I like you. Do you like me? Check a box. Yes. No. Yeah. We were just past that. We had graduated passed the note passing at that point. And the way that I learned that this young lady might be interested with me was she was a friend of my sister. And my sister came to me and her name was Lynn. And this is, by the way, a very long time ago before I met my lovely and beautiful and talented and amazing wife. (laughs) And before I got enough brains to get a girl like that. So anyway... I'd, I received word from my sister, hey, you know what, Lynn thinks you're cute. Now, let me tell you, back in the 1970s, that was a big word for a guy uh, to hear about a girl thinking that he was cute, okay? I told you that when I met my wife, it was in college, and by that time, um, I was college age, and in the middle 70s, if a guy thought a woman, a young woman, was an attractive person, they referred to them as a fox, and, and in fact, it was the prevailing opinion in my college that Darlene is a fox. And I fully agree with that statement. But going back, it was a big deal to, to know that there was a young lady who looked upon me not with irritation, not speaking my name through her teeth, but actually thinking I was cute. Yeah, baby. And that really did something to me. And so she rode the bus with me. She was in our on our school bus. And I had a girlfriend. We talked a little bit. She actually sat in the bus uh, in the same seat with me. And we began to talk to one another. And we decided there on that bus seat that we were going to go study. I had no idea what that meant. All I knew was that I was the man because I had a girlfriend. 
Her name was Lynn, as I said, and I remember uh, one of the rides in the school a couple days into our, our powerful romance, the day where I built up the courage to kind of reach across the seat and she let me hold her hand. Oh, my word. It was big. It was electric. I could barely breathe. I was holding the hand of a female and she was letting me and she wasn't hitting me. It was amazing to me. And I was thrilled to be able to hold the hand and feel how much softer it was than anybody else's I had held. You know, it was amazing to me. To me, it was a new world. And I was trying so hard to impress her. This 13 and a half year old boy with um, more hair than he should have had. I don't know what it was about me back then. The style for guys was to have longer hair. And when I grew my hair Longer it grew just out. I looked something like a palm tree because I was really, really skinny and my hair was super frizzy uh, for some reason. And on top it was flat. So it really looked like a palm tree. But anyway, I digress. We're sitting on the school bus. And by now, man, I mean, we've been boyfriend, girlfriend for a long, long, long time, like three days. And and we were riding home. And it just felt like this was an important moment. And. I um, I was determined in my mind I was going to experience my first kiss on the lips. That's what I wanted. And and so I I'm, I was thinking, uh, how can I make this happen? So I was trying to impress her. I was trying to be funny. And I did the, the, the thing that I'd seen somebody do on TV. <sighs> she was sitting right next to me. And, the, and she let me do this. And I'm sure she went home with wet shoulders, I'm just saying, you know. But I know, that's gross, but I'm sure it happened. So so I'm sitting there, and we're talking, and we're smiling, and it was about time for her to get off. And, and I thought, well, I think I'm going to try to give her a goodnight kiss. And I kind of looked at her, and she looked at me. There was no repulsion in her face. And, and so I started to try to... Move in for a kiss. And, and she let me move closer. And, and at that very second, that very crucial moment, unfortunately, I let out a really loud belch. It wasn't, it wasn't intentional. I think I had a nervous uh, stomach or something. But let me just say to you, needless to say, I didn't get a kiss that night. I didn't get a kiss from Lynn the next day. In fact, that broke up the relationship right there because it was the wrong approach. And although it was accidental, it wasn't the right approach. I need to read to you a passage of Scripture. And I need to put something in a framework of the right approach. Okay? And so bear with me as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'll come back to you with some comments to kind of help us understand what this is saying here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. I need to stop for just a second and let that sink in. I need to suggest to you that sometimes there are church assemblies and meetings of people of Christians that can do more harm than good. And some of you are nodding your head because you might have saddened some of them where you've been hurt. 
And what a terrible indictment. What a sad thing that Paul said to a church. I'm not going to give you praise because your meetings do are doing more harm than they're doing good. Would you just let that sink in into your heart and God forbid the Holy Spirit would ever have to say this to us. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have, have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are sick, weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If you, if you weren't one yourself, you know of a problem child, don't you? And, and some of you were the problem child or are the problem child. But you know what I'm talking about. You've been in enough public places to see a kid that just or gone to school or, and, and, and that kid always is in trouble. They're the problem child. You've known families that have a problem child. I want you to know that for the Apostle Paul, unfortunately for him, his problem child church was the church at Corinth. They just had issues. They had they, they were creating heartache for him. Paul uh, shed a lot of tears over this church. He loved these people dearly. And they and in many ways they were wonderful people. They were great people. They were regular people. They were an unusual congregation and very unique and I'll get to that. But they became a problem child to him. And he had to write to them some pretty stern warnings and, and things. And he wrote this admonition to them about the Lord's Supper. He had to, if you will, he had to come down on them because they had a totally horrible approach to the Lord's table. And it was wrong. It wasn't the right approach. And I have to say to you that this still goes on today. That we live in a world where so often people's perspective on important spiritual matters can be so convoluted and so miscued that we can take a holy thing, a beautiful thing, and profane it and make it not holy and more harmful than good. And it happens in the church a lot of times. A lot of it happens in our hearts and is manifested in our attitudes 
and our actions toward one another and toward God. We can end up with a totally unrighteous approach to an opportunity to have a wonderful reception of God's grace and holiness and righteousness into our lives. Have you ever heard anyone refer to praying for someone else as a way to make them feel a little bit guilty or to send an insult and insinuate wickedness or, the, or inferiority on their part? What I mean is, man, I'm praying for you. I'll pray for you that God changes your attitude. And they're, they're the one that Jesus spoke about that was looking at the speck in somebody's eye while they got a plank hanging out of their own eye. And, and that approach to saying, it's a wonderful thing. And let me tell you, one of the greatest gifts you give me as a church is you pray for me. And I know many of you do. Some of you say, oh, God, help him. Okay, and I thank you for that. I need that. And it's a wonderful gift to have somebody walk up and say, Pastor, I want you to know that I love you and I'm praying for you. What a blessing. That is, that's huge to me. That means so much to me. And I know it comes from sincerity. But there are ways to say that, and that's the right approach. But you've heard of those and been around people who say, I'm praying for you in a way to hurt you. And so we can take the most holy of things and we can, we can because of our attitudes, defame it and, and, and make it horrible. My dad once had a woman say to him, I pray that one day you won't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. What a terrible thing for one believer to say to another. That was an accusation, not a prayer request. And so we need to be careful about that. Some people under the guise of witnessing have done more harm than they've done good. And we know that. And sharing our faith is so very important for us to do. We have people in our lives who need to know the message of Jesus Christ. But we can wrap it up in such a way that makes it harmful. Amen? We can make it terrible in the way that we minister to people. We had a little bit of a discussion about that in our Sunday school class. How legalism can help or hurt our way of helping people know Jesus. There is a right approach to praying for someone. There is a right approach to sharing our faith. And there is a right approach to participating in the table of the Lord. And there is a wrong approach. And the Apostle Paul was confronting this church in Corinth about the fact that they took the, a totally wrong approach to a very sacred, special sacrament that was established by Jesus for his church. This particular church, the Church of Corinth, was comprised of people from all of the social economical scale. Some were very, very rich and some were very, very poor. And then there were your blue collar type people in the middle who worked very hard to just eke out a living. And all up and down that economic scale, that that church happened to be the, the, the city of Corinth was one of these cities that was an industrial city. They had a lot of industry. They had a lot of businesses. They had a lot of wealth in that city and a lot of affluence. But they also had the, the, the side of the tracks, if you, will, if you will, will, where there was great poverty, where people went hungry. And this church happened to be, it was a new church, as you know, all churches in this era were new. This church happened to be a unique church in that there were very, very wealthy people coming to this church. At the same time, there were very, very poor people coming to the same church. And so it was truly a melting pot of cultures because also Corinth was an area where cultures from people from all over the world came. 
And there were, there, it was a melting pot of people. And this was a unique church. And some of the problems that they experienced had to do with the fact that they were uniquely brought together from different places. There was, this truly was a congregation of the haves and the have-nots in so many ways. And this unique makeup would be highlighted in the way and the approach that the church observed, and I'm putting in quotes, the Lord's Supper. And later, Paul would say there were so many errors in the way that they did it that it wasn't even the Lord's Supper. First, through some false teaching that come, had come through the church, their observance of the Lord's Supper was treated as part of a regular meal. And when Jesus instituted it, he instituted it after the Passover meal. And it is a standalone sacrament. It isn't meant to be as part of a big meal together. It is a sacrament of remembrance. It is a symbolic, powerful, moving sacrament that Jesus wanted to have as a standalone communion, spiritual communion between he and his church. And this church, through some false teaching, integrated it into having a big old sit-in potluck meal. Well, it really wasn't a potluck meal. It was just a big sit-in meal, bring your own food. And one of the issues that they had was how they were observing the Lord's Supper. They just, they just included it in what they were eating and drinking without a thought. Without a thought of the, what, the, what the beverage meant. Or what the bread meant. They just took it as part of a regular, everyday meal. And that was an error. And it was the wrong approach. And it made a holy thing uh, an unholy thing. And so, in reality, this is, this is meant to mark the coming of a new covenant between God and His people. And that's why we observe the Lord's Supper and not the Passover today. Although it has ties to the Passover. The people of the church, Corinth, uh, sort of combined the two observances, and it was a, um, a hybrid. It wasn't what it was to be. Another problem with the approach, and this was the bigger part, was in how they were treating one another at their, quote, Lord's Supper observances. Somewhere along the line, the leadership of this church had made an awful decision to have each person and their family bring their own food and drink to these observances. There was no elements prepared for the Lord's Supper. There was nothing that was made ready for the people. They were on their own. And so what would happen is because of the vast differences in culture, vast differences in socioeconomic scale, what would happen is you had the very, very wealthy people who could afford to sometimes get their, their businesses up and running and leave it and come in early to the church. And all the rich people had a habit of coming in early because they honestly didn't want to associate with those poor people. And so at, at one point in the day, earlier in the day, the rich people would bring their food in that they had their servants prepare for them. And they would bring it in and spread a table out for them and their family members. And that was their spot. That was their family member's spot. And nobody else dared join them. And that's how they would, would establish it. And they sort of had competition in families. You know, who could bring the best looking spread? And I can imagine them even decorating their tables. To sort of accentuate the fact that, hey, we got it going on in our family. And so they would come and they would begin right away to eat. 
a little bit later in the day to people who worked very hard all day, would leave their jobs, get things together. They would come to the church and they would prepare their own food. And finally, they would sit down at a meal and they would they would eat together. Now, the rich have already been eating and now they're getting drunk on wine. That's what they're doing. They're drinking. And they're socializing with one another. Now the working class has arrived. And they're now indulging in a meal. Finally, because they didn't have food, the very poor who still was part of this church and wanted to be part of this observance would come in and they would sit there and watch people eat. And they wouldn't eat. And they would go hungry while other people got drunk. And this, this very beautiful, holy thing that the Lord Jesus had instituted in the church had become so convoluted that it became something completely different and profane in the way that they were treating one another. Just while I'm on the subject of how holy things can be taken and convoluted and profaned, I want you to know that in spite of how our our society treats it, as God created it within the com of where God created it. Sex is a beautiful, godly, holy thing. It's just that we made it what it is. Humans do this. And it's not anywhere near what God had intended it to be. Can I get an amen from one of you? There's a holy way that a man and a woman can be together in a confounds of marriage. And it was intended for that alone. And that's just an example of how our society departs away. And the, the church of Corinth, Christians, believers, had so convoluted this celebration that this is what was happening. Verse 21, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. So their approach to the sacred sacrament of the Lord's Supper was actually offensive to the very one that they were supposed to be honoring and worshiping. So what's the right way to observe the Lord's Supper? I want to be a pastor for a moment and talk to you, my people, and try to be a shepherd and and give you a little bit of, of help, I hope, in how to approach the Lord's table and how to come and receive These elements that are so important to our faith and our walk with the Lord. I would suggest to you that when we come to the Lord's Supper observances, approach the Lord's Supper in self-examination. That's what verse 28 tells us. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. What each of us need to do before partaking of what is the body and the blood of Jesus is examine our own hearts and our own motives, search out our character in our own minds and our behavior, think through what we've been, how we've been, how we treat other people, what it looks like in the sight of a holy God. We need to examine our own hearts and we need to examine our attitudes so that God may speak to us. And if we recognize that something isn't right, Now is the time before we partake. Now is the time to confess that and sincerely seek God's forgiveness and ask for him to give you faith and grace and mercy and for him to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. What I'm saying 
It's before we partake of what is the body and the blood of the Lord. We need to, to confess to the Lord Jesus any sinfulness in our lives. We need to do that before we approach his table. We don't want to be guilty of receiving this in a way that isn't pleasing to the Lord. In addition, if it's possible, if there's something that is between you and another believer, you and another person, if there's a broken relationship and there's a problem, before you approach the table, the Lord, I, I implore you, I beg you, try to make that right with them. Try to fix that between you. Sometimes you can only do what you can do. You can do your part and trust the rest of God. Have you been there? Have you ever been in a situation where the other person doesn't want reconciliation? But you've had to be the person who has said, uh, here's where I, I'm owning this. I've done this. I'm doing my very best to make this right with you. Then your heart is clear before God because in all sincerity, you're trying to make things right. But you can't come to the Lord's table with hatred in your heart. You can't come to the Lord's table. That's the wrong approach with, with uh, hoping that somebody dies. You can't do that. Don't come to the Lord's table that way. Come to the Lord's table with your heart cleared. Having done your very best to be right before God. And that's such an important... That's why the scripture tells us we need to examine ourselves. Now, be, with that said... And now that you've heard me say about uh, that, that's part of our approach to the Lord's Supper is the, the self-examination. I want to say to you a word or two about what verse 27 says, which has tripped some people up. Therefore, it says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. How many of you here are like me? You don't have to do a whole lot of self-examination to know that you're never going to be worthy to receive the body and the blood of the Lord. Let me just help you with that a little bit. There's not a soul on this earth who is worthy of what Jesus did for us. This verse doesn't say, come and be worthy. It says, receive it in a worthy way. Receive it in a way that is pleasing to God. Knowing, in fact, this is the way you should come. Knowing that you don't deserve to be at the table of the Lord. Either do I. Nobody does. You're never going to be worthy of what Jesus did on the cross. I'm never going to deserve His forgiveness and His mercy. But praise God, it's not about me. It's about Him. Amen? It's about His holiness, His righteousness, His love, and what He does for us. So when you approach the table, do it the right way. Approach it with an idea and an understanding. I can approach the Lord's table in a way that is worthy of God. I'm not worthy but I can do it in a right spirit. I can do it in a right attitude and a right heart. So we ought to examine our motives. I don't want you to go out of here and say, I'll never receive communion. I can't because I'll never be good enough. Yes, you are. You are good enough. But you have to approach it recognizing what you're doing and why you're doing it and in the right spirit, okay? Please don't go home saying, well, Pastor Ken said I'm not worthy. I did say that. You're not worthy. But you can come in a worthy way, amen? None of us are worthy, and we never will be. Thank God for His goodness. So what this verse is not saying is that it's possible to be worthy of the Lord's Supper. What it's saying is it's possible to take this in an in a unworthy manner and with a wrong approach. But, the, but we can be like the, either like the Corinthian church or we can come in a right way. The bottom line is if we approach the Lord's Supper with self-examination, we'll take care 
to participate in a, in a worthy, in a right manner. About a year ago, I was invited to uh, participate in a, a, a wonderful movement, um, I, at least as far as I'm concerned. You may have a different opinion. I'm okay if you do, okay? I really am. But I personally uh, participated in what's known as the Walk to Emmaus. And if you ever are invited to go, um, I as a pastor would support you. I would help you in any way. It's a meaningful experience. They give you a, a book, okay? And they, they share in it various readings. And this is just a guide for a prayer before taking communion. We did this. We've read this together. <clears throat> so if you'll bear with me as I read this, I want you to let these words sink in. And it's an example, a sample of how we may approach the Lord's table in prayer. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It's a great way to prepare your heart to understand that we examine ourselves and not to be um, so arrogant as to not be willing to confess that we'll never be worthy of what Jesus did for us. And we need him. We need his grace. The second thing that I want to suggest that we do is approach the Lord's Supper in heart, mind, and body. We already talked about examining ourselves carefully, and that takes care of how we are thinking, and that's an important thing to do, and we should do that. Most of us probably have been scolded as a child because we came to the table with our hands dirty. Raise your hand if that ever happened to you. Yes. And we were sent away from the table and you were to wash your hands. And we know that that's proper etiquette and we are told to do that. But once you've washed up, you still have some etiquette and some rules at the table. You can't just come to the table and snatch up the food. And, you know, we all wait on each other in, in most families, right? You, you can't just, just gorge. You can't, there's a way that you eat. You, you can't pick up your soup bowl and just dump it. You know, there's things that you, you, you have etiquette. You have rules at the table. And at, at least when I grew up, one of the big deals was you don't put your elbows on the table when you're eating. I don't know why that's a rule, but it was a rule. I hated that rule. I love my elbows on the table. But anyway, I, to this day, I can hear my mom screaming at me. Don't you put your elbows on it. Anyway, so I don't do it. There's rules. There's etiquette. I want to tell you that there's still a proper way to approach the, the Lord's Supper as you receive it. You've washed. You're ready. You've examined yourself. You confess. And that's a good thing. But we, we, we also approach the Lord's Supper with our hearts and our minds and our bodies. And again, we talked about our hearts in the work of confession and receiving forgiveness from the Lord, taking care of our hearts and making them right. But now what about our minds and what about our bodies? It's also vital to come and focus in our minds what we're doing. Please don't come to the Lord's table and just receive elements and thoughtlessly pop them in your mouth and not even think about what they mean. That's not the right approach. This is about what we are to think about when we are doing it. We are to remember. That's an activity of the mind. 
We are to remember what Jesus did, what it took for him to do what he did in order for us to even come to the Lord's Supper. We just can't allow ourselves to be glib about the sacrifices that Jesus made. We can't let our minds just go every which way while we participate in this holy, sacred service. We must come today thinking about what he did for us, thinking about his body, thinking about his blood. We got to remember what that bread means and what that juice means. We got to think about the physical suffering that he endured, the beating and the scourging and the piercing of the nails. We need that to be in our mind. We need to think about the blood that was shed. I'm not trying to be morose here, but that's the focus. We think about our Savior. We don't make it about somebody else or something else. We make it about Him. As one of the exercises of heart examination. When you hold a grudge against somebody, you're angry at somebody, you could be danger. It could be in danger of coming to the Lord's table and you're still mad thinking about that girl that made you so mad and you're not even where you need to be mentally. And we can't do that. God discerns those things. We need to think. We need to engage our mind. We need to remember what they did to him. That he was insulted and spat upon. And the, the absurdity of it all. I often think about the Heavenly Father when I think about the crucifixion. And how absurd it was for him to watch what they did to his son. They took the creator of the universe. Human beings put him in a court and accused him. How ridiculous is that? What human being can point their finger at God and accuse him? But that's what they did. They spat on him. They insulted him. They pulled his beard out. They beat him. They scourged him. And they killed him. And how the heavenly father... Restrain himself. Blows my mind. It humbles me. I have to tell you, I love my children. And I love you. I do. But I don't love any of you enough to let you put nails in their hands. In their feet. A crown of thorn on their head. I don't love you enough for that. I wouldn't let you do that if I could stop you. God the Father. Let that happen. In fact, it was his plan. And I think about the absurdity of it. And I think this meal, this, this sacrament, deserves our focus. I think it is an affront to a holy God for us to just thoughtlessly grab a hold and recite things and hardly even think about it and throw juice in our, our gullet. I think that's an affront to a holy God considering everything that Jesus did. How would you feel? If you gave your very child and then when people was, were supposed to at least commemorate their death, instead of doing that, they just ah, partied it up and acted the way the church of Corinth did. No wonder God was angry. They took this holy thing that Jesus did and they profaned it. And so please come with your minds engaged as you partake today. Think and remember about it. And we also use our bodies in this service. We are to eat the bread and to drink the juice. We are to ingest it. Our senses are involved. We use our eyes to see the elements to remind us of the body and the blood of the Lord. We use our ears to hear the word of the Lord as we receive the elements. And it's an important thing to engage all of us. And I want to challenge you to do it. Use your eyes to fix your gaze on the bread and the juice to help you remember the wounds and the pain and the sacrifice that Jesus gave to you.
Bring the elements into your mouths and smell them. And connect it. Engage your body. And understand that this is a beautiful opportunity for you to commune with your Savior. Involve your hearts. Involve your minds and your bodies in this service. It's the right approach. Finally, let me suggest to you, approach the Lord's Supper in recognition of his body. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And here's what I'm asking you to remember today. Here is what this service really is all about and what you're about to do is all about. It is about worship. It's about you worshiping the Lord. I'm going to throw this in. This is free, okay? I just need to say this to you so you understand something about our approach to worship. No matter what church I'm standing in, Jesus is worthy of my worship. Do you hear me? And so I don't get tripped up on what style of music. I just don't. I love, listen to me, I love going into churches where they have high church music with the organs and the gorgeous old hymns of the church. I love that. And sometimes I need to go to one of those services and just sing those powerfully written lyrics. And I can worship my brains out doing that. I can tell you, I can go to a church that do a bunch of Gaither style, Southern gospel style. I cut my teeth in on that. I love that style. But I can do what we did this morning and I can do what we what we don't do that that we would consider. Whoo, that's hard stuff. As long as it glorifies God and it is fitting for worshiping my king, I can do it because it's not about the style. It's about the heart. Amen. So please, when you approach this table, recognize what it's about. It is the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is so important to us to recognize what this day is about. I want you to understand that children are being brought back in so that they can participate. They've had a lesson from Pastor Michelle on what I am teaching so that they may participate with their family. They've been invited to be with us as we as a church family Come to the table of the Lord. So you know they've been instructed the same way I'm instructing you. But come recognizing what these elements are. The body and the blood of the Lord. What an important thing. I know that none of us here wants to be an affront to the Lord Jesus. The right approach is to recognize why we take this in. It's his body. It's his blood. No one else could have done what Jesus did. Amen. No other body would have done what Jesus' body did. No other one could have died on the cross. No one else is the sinless sinless lamb of God. Only Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says of Jesus, and this helps me, I hope it helps you. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things are created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is above all things. Praise the Lord that he is. Amen. That's whose body we're we're recognizing today. And in him, all things hold together. Sometimes it's too easy for us to forget all of the things that we see and know and don't see. That all was created by Jesus. We forget whose body We are recognizing today. But today, let's do whatever we can to muster up the faith to receive this in thanksgiving.